All right, please take your Bibles and turn with me today to Ephesians chapter 5. I warned you we were coming to these messages. Uh, These are the final two messages this week and next week on marriage. And this is where we take everything that we have learned thus far. We begin to really, really apply it to men and women in this idea of deference, biblical marriage. So uh, marriage, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, is joyful sacrifice. The rewards of marriage are not found in pursuing yourself. The rewards of marriage are found in pursuing the other, even at the expense of myself. And this is what we call one of the Christian paradoxes, something which you cannot understand from the outside looking in when you sit there and think about the idea that I am going to find joy and I am going to find contentment by giving myself up and by yielding myself to another. It doesn't make sense from a human perspective. That's not how the human mind or human, uh, the, 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 the carnal mind naturally works. But it is something that can only be understood from the perspective of having done it. When you have the faith to step into such a life and you begin to lead such a life by faith, you find that everything that the Bible says is uncompromisingly true, is absolutely the case, but you cannot see it until you have the faith. When I'm in the jail and I talk about this idea of faith, and we talked about this in Hebrews chapter 11, we talked about it, uh, um, we've talked about it throughout Hebrews, the idea that faith always comes before the blessing. And the picture that I give is that God is saying that if you, that he's, he's bringing you to the end of the cliff and he's saying that if you jump off that cliff, I'm going to catch you on the other side, b- below those clouds, below those clouds, I'm going to catch you. And when I catch you, I'm going to bring you to something so much better than what's on the top of the cliff. And you say, well, God, can you, can you move the clouds so I can see what's down there? And he says, I've told you what's down there and that should be enough for you. Yeah, but just move the clouds. No, I have told you what's down there. I have always been faithful. I have always shown myself faithful. So take the step. I will catch you. And down there is better than up here. But faith has to come before the blessing. God's not going to give you the blessing in order to compel you under the faith. He asks you to trust him, to exert the faith, to exercise the faith. And then at the end of that faith comes the blessing. And these, this is why the paradoxes of the Christian life exist. They exist because, Hebrews eleven six says, without faith... It is impossible to please him. What pleases God is when I, knowing who God is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, rest in his promises and position my life to be a recipient of those promises because I believe they're true. And for anyone who does so, as you can testify as well as I, God has never failed. And so last time we were together, we were considering the design of God through procreation, right? Within the scope of the marriage relationship, we recognize the essential importance of children having a father and a mother, both practically as it relates to being rightly adjusted to the world around him and spiritually as it relates to being rightly adjusted to the God of the Bible, that the marriage relationship reflects the gospel. And so a right family orientation, man, woman, Married together, having children, being a father and a mother to those children does not just help them orient themselves properly to the world, which it does, but it helps them orient themselves properly to the gospel. And our concluding thought from that message was this. God's design in marriage is essential in practice, not just in principle. Well, we're human. As humans, we have a really good track record of identifying what is good and right and speaking of it, and advocating for it, and being loyal to it in principle. But because we're human, 
We also have a very good track record of struggling to maintain our loyalty to those things in practice. Right? It's one thing to say, I should eat healthy. It's good to eat healthy. It's good to have these fruits. It's good to have these vegetables. It's good to not eat too much of this and not eat too much of that. And that's all very easy to say and to even be loyal to in principle, but it's much more difficult for we humans to be loyal to in practice, right? This is natural. We all struggle in the area of taking what we know to be right and what we're happy to say is right and living out what is right in our lives. And the reason why this is so difficult is because the practice of a thing is where the rubber meets the road. That's where we are asked to change. That's where we are asked to sacrifice. That's where we're asked to otherwise yield our own way, what we want, to something else, presumably something better, but we have to have enough forethought, enough forward-looking vision to say the better thing from this sacrifice is worth this sacrifice in the immediate. And humans struggle with this thing called immediate gratification, right? We like what we like and we like it now. And it's very difficult for us to set aside the immediate gratification for the long-term benefits. I mean, who wants to do that, right? Who wants to be loyal to something in practice, when it's going to ask so much, with only the promise of reward. To be loyal to something in principle asks nothing of me, except for words. What we have come to know today as virtue signaling, right? But to be loyal to something in practice means I have to change what I do. Who wants to do that? Well, the fact is you want to do that. And I want to do that. We want to do that. Because God's results don't come to those who are loyal to him in principle. God's results come to those who are loyal to him in practice. And this is what we call faith. When what we know becomes what we believe and so affects what we do. That's practice. And last time we connected this to parents staying together, fulfilling their roles, raising their children. But today I want to connect this to the marriage relationship directly. We are on the eighth week of nine weeks of talking about marriage, two full months as of this morning on marriage. It's been a while. It's gotten us a little bit diverted from our Genesis series just this week. I'm a couple weeks ahead right now. Just this week, I wrote the sermon in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. So we're working our way back into Genesis now here very, very soon. But the first three messages were principal messages where we took the time to walk through the Bible in order to establish the definition of biblical marriage as a one flesh union between one man and one woman for life. Very important that we did that. Then we spent two messages on a bit of a side on, on divorce and what the Bible says about divorce and why it says what it says on the topic. And then the past two messages have been practice messages that have been showing the results, right, of a biblical marriage and the things that, that the obvious applications of a biblical marriage to the responsibilities of a husband and wife. And we have touched on the concept multiple times throughout the series, a concept rooted in the teaching of Paul regarding the church and Christ in Ephesians chapter 5, and that's going to be our focus for the next two weeks as we talk first about the husband, his relationship, and his responsibilities in the marriage, and then next week, the wife, her relationship and responsibility within the marriage, Ephesians chapter 5. So we've read it. We're going to read it one more, well, this week and next week. We'll read it again next week, but we'll read it a couple more times. In Ephesians chapter 5, you're there looking at verse 22. The Bible says this, wives, 
Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. Okay, so we've read this several times and come across the concept over and over again. In that the design of marriage is to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and his church. The husband being the representative of Christ and the head of the body. And the wife being the representative of the church and the actual body itself. And in that God has designed us in his image... And so his design in marriage has been designed to work properly only when a husband and wife are accurately fulfilling their God-given and their God-designed roles. If we're going to be loyal to God's design in biblical marriage, in practice, then husbands must be loyal to this determination to love their wives as Christ has demonstrated his love for the church. And wives must be loyal to the determination to reverence their husbands as, Christ, as the church is taught to submit to Christ. There's no way around this. And let me stress it again. There is no benefit to being loyal to the principles of biblical marriage if we refuse to do what is necessary to align with them in practice. In fact, there's likely more harm than good in that, isn't there? Because it makes us obvious hypocrites. And it invalidates our testimony before those with whom we speak. So if we hold to these things in principle, but then our lives do not reflect them in practice, because we say one thing, but we do the opposite in practice, even among those who don't know that that we are doing different than we're saying, it becomes a real problem. As a matter of fact, specifically because uh, among those who, who see, hear what we're saying, but don't see what we're doing. In other words, if we preach the principles of a husband loving his wife and a wife submitting to her husband in principle, but we don't live them in practice, then when our lives inevitably, and our marriages inevitably fail to reflect the success of a relationship that is living out the principles that we're preaching then people who say, oh, these are the principles they're preaching will look and say, they must not work. Because here they're preaching these principles, but their marriages are still a mess. So those principles must not work. They may, must not be any different than anyone else because they're preaching these principles, which means they presume we're practicing those principles, but we're still a mess. And so it can actually be worse for us if we're preaching these principles, but failing to practice them in our lives. But of course, if our marriages fail to bear out the fruit 
of the nature of the word of God as it relates to marriage, if we fail to align with those principles, it isn't because God's ideas are bad. It's because we didn't follow them. Our ideas aren't better than anyone else's ideas, but God's ideas are most certainly better than anyone else's ideas. Our ideas are, ought to be God's teachings about how he designed marriage to function on the basis of his design of both men and women. God's design cannot fail. It never has failed. And so let's talk about God's design for marriage. And if we want to boil it down to a single key word, it would be selflessness. We could use the word sacrifice. And with men, there's another word that I want you to keep in the front of your mind as it relates to your marriage and your family. Selflessness is a good one. Sacrifice is a good one. But I also want you to keep the word ownership in mind. One of the things that our generation of men struggles with is taking ownership. Having the courage and the integrity, which is what a man, that's what makes a man a man. What makes a man a man is he has courage and he has integrity. And a man having the courage and the integrity to take ownership over his marriage, to take ownership over his family. And I don't mean slave ownership. What I mean is the buck stops here. I'm responsible. It is my job. And so husbands, today we begin with you. Wives, we'll talk to you next week. Bible says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Husbands, this is our obligation before the Lord. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And Paul specifically says how it is that Christ did this and gave himself for it. Selfless love, absolute love. Husband, you step into a marriage. Your life is not your own. You exist. Your, your, the, the essence of your life is now devoted to a wife than to children. Paul would go on to say in verses 28 and 29, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Now, within the one flesh design of marriage, the wife is uh, literally his body, right? The idea being that you are not your own goes both ways as it relates to that one flesh design. And we talked about that two weeks ago in the privilege and obligations of marriage. But Paul is giving more of a, of a practical example here than a theological principle. He's not talking about that idea of the one flesh idea so that two have become one. Uh, he's talking more about a, a practical illustration of the nature of how a person treats their body. When I'm hungry, I eat. And I eat because I want to live. My body needs fuel. When I'm tired, I sleep. I sleep because I want to live and my body needs rest. When I'm injured, I treat those injuries because I want to live and so I need to protect my body if it's going to live. And the call, husband, is to love your wives in that same way, to take care of her, to meet her needs, to be sensitive to the aches and the pains and to seek to mend them. Now, the body illustration is a good one and a helpful one, but not a perfect one. Not everyone does a good job for caring for his own body, right? If I rely upon this illustration as a definitive example of what loving my wife looks like, my love will fall short because I, 
as with most of us, right, still go about to deny our bodies the things that they might need more often than it ought. The body is resilient, and we thank the Lord for that. Uh, sometimes we get injured, and we try to push through it, and it makes it worse, and, 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 and things don't get better, and then I end up um, with, with uh, I end up sl- slightly hobbled, or whatever the case may be, because I, I, I pushed my body too far, or, or I didn't take care of myself. And there are consequences to those things. And, and the illustration holds up there, right? That if I am not going to take care of my body as I ought, it is going to come with consequences. I was talking to, I think it was Nathaniel uh, this, this last week, but I don't know if you've ever noticed a, a little bit of uh, one of these when I preach. I, I, I tick my left arm a little bit. Uh, that's an old soccer injury. I was a goalie and I was going up to catch a ball and uh, partially just someone came up under me and partially dislocated my shoulder. And it's never quite been the same since. Right, I've got an ankle that clicks uh, because I was uh, running one time and I rolled my ankle really bad and it's clicked ever since. And so, you know, there are things that when you, when you kind of put your body out there on the line, uh, I, I, I've also suffered from neglecting um, food and sleep and such at various times in my life. And I've got some things coming from that, too. So we can all talk about times that we've abused ourselves a little bit, pushed ourselves a little bit too far. And now we're dealing with the long term consequences of such things. And that necessarily holds up as it relates to caring for our body. But the illustration, you know, if, if, if we try to hold to that illustration, at some point it's going to break down a little bit. But fortunately, Paul's just giving a little bit of an illustration here. We don't have to rely upon the inconsistent or insufficient illustration of, of caring for our bodies in order to understand what loving my wife should look like. Because Paul gives not just an illustration, but he also connects an analogy. Love your wife as Christ loves the church. Here he gives a perfect picture of love through his son, Jesus Christ. So how did Christ love the church? And I'd like to think about it in three ways this morning. Through example, through direction, and through development. The love of Christ for his church is sacrificial, and this is obvious. Jesus died on the cross, right? He hangs upon the cross He suffers the indignity. He suffers the shame. He suffers the wounds. He literally gave his life for his church. That's that's obvious. He set himself aside for the sake of those whom he loved. He placed their wellness and their well-being ahead of his own. And thus, his love was commended to the church. So that Romans 5, 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But within the scope of that analogy, we find physically he died for the church. History reveals that men have characteristically borne the burden of giving their lives to protect their wives and their families, right? Uh, That men have characteristically and historically borne the burden of going to war to protect those that are home. The idea of giving your life for your wife is actually not a hard thing, I think, for any husband to think about. The the, the concept that you you would sacrifice yourself, your life that your life might end and you would sacrifice your life for your wife, not very difficult to imagine. It's kind of baked into men to be willing to do such a thing. But there's actually something far more difficult at play here than that, than just the crucifixion idea. It's one thing to physically give your life for your wife. The husbands of this church might someday be asked to do exactly that, and I would imagine that none of you would hesitate to do so. But it's actually more of a difficult thing to give your life for your wife now, to live for your wife, not to die for your wife, to live for your wife, to set yourself aside for her 
And that's actually what's being spoken of here. Not dying for your wife, living for your wife. Not dying physically for your wife, but dying to self for your wife. Dedicating yourself to supplying her needs physically, emotionally, spiritually. So that any need of hers becomes an intrinsic need of yours. If she lacks in any way, you feel that lack and are dedicated to making it up. If my knee hurts, my whole body's going to feel it. And it's going to fundamentally affect everything about my functioning. If my back hurts, if I've got a headache, these things are going to fundamentally and intrinsically affect my whole body. If my wife lacks, I ought to feel it. And as with any part of the body, when it is lacking, if there's a way I can fix it, I go about to make that happen. This may mean setting aside your priorities, redirecting your resources, having less time for you and more time for her. If she's in a bad place spiritually, this may mean enduring. If, 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 if she's you know, in, in a place of anger, in a place of, 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 of uh, unrighteousness, it may mean enduring abuse, anger, manipulation, responding to her impatience and determined virtue in order to lead her into the truth. This kind of sacrifice is often more difficult than just dying for her because it's the kind of sacrifice that calls you to live for her. It calls you to see any deficiency in her as a deficiency in yourself and to go about to meet that need with the resources necessary to bring her to the place that she needs to be. And let's be clear really quickly about what this does not mean, just to be clear. I'm not talking about spoiling your wife. She's the queen of the home. Everything she says goes. I'm not talking about giving her everything she wants. I'm not talking about indulging her materialism or her lust or her pettiness or her whims. I'm not talking about indulging the emotional manipulation or whatever it might be, the anger. This is not love. This is laziness. This is you giving her what she wants to the detriment of what she actually needs so that she'll be pacified and you won't have to deal with her anymore. Opening your wallet so that she'll stop being a problem to you is not fixing the problem. It is not loving her. It is you being lazy. It is you giving her what she wants at the expense of what she needs so that you don't have to deal with her. That's not love. You don't treat your children that way in love. And it isn't love when you treat your wife that way either. The old adage says, happy wife, happy life. And in fact, husbands, this is true. But if the happiness your wife is experiencing is the temporal happiness of carnal indulgence, then all you actually have is a pacified wife, and that's not going to lead to a happy life. It may get her off your back. She may not bother you for a while. She may allow you to do what you want. You don't have to worry about it anymore. But you haven't actually loved her into anything profitable. You've just pacified her. And in pacifying her, you've both taught and encouraged her in those imbalances, when in fact you are charged by God with leading her into the fullness of spiritual material potential that she can have. But to lead her into that fullness of spiritual potential that she can have is a sacrifice. It means living for her. It means loving her. 
setting yourself aside for her, taking the time to understand her and to lead her into something more. So that the sacrificial love of a husband toward his wife, as with all sacrifices, begins with a decision well before it becomes an action. You must choose to set yourself aside to do what is best for her, regardless of your self-interest or circumstance. And in fact, that's how we define love at this church, right? That biblical love is doing what is best for another, regardless of self-interest and regardless of circumstance. That is what Jesus did for us. Jesus did not come to earth because it was going to be a fun time. Jesus did not preach righteousness and go through having no place to lay his head, hungering and thirsting and being weary and being worn and being rejected of men because he wanted to for himself. Jesus did not go to the cross for himself. He knelt on the ground in the, in the garden of Gethsemane and he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, only to then come to the place where he said, nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. It was not a good time. But it was worth it for his church, for the love that he had for us. He did these things. It was a choice to do what was best for the object of, of love, regardless of self-interest or circumstance. So Peter tells husbands in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, that would be wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Now, the idea of a weaker vessel here does not mean that she is inferior in any way, shape, or form, right? We've talked about this before. Uh, there is not an echelon of superiority and inferiority within uh, the marriage relationship or between men and women, much less husbands and wives. We're not saying that women are incapable. We're not, and, and nor is the Bible saying that the women are incapable. That women are incapable. Uh, that that they are lacking or deficient in any way. Uh, we notice the natural differences between men and women in the areas that women excel and men excel. That's God's design principles and the like. But the idea here of the weaker vessel is the idea that she has, by virtue of her position and responsibility before the Lord to reverence her husband, and by virtue of her within the relationship being the body with, with, with the husband as the head, she has chosen to place herself under your authority and direction. Now, you all, many of you have had bosses in one shape, one, one way, shape, or form. There's a big difference between a, a, a leader of any, of any sort who sees the, the position of leadership as a way to lord himself over others or a leader who sees the position of a leadership as a humbling experience by which he now is responsible for others. Now, a person can step into a position of leadership, the exact same position of leadership, and can become a tyrant or can become a servant. Now, as it relates to the concept of the wife as the weaker vessel, the idea there is that she has placed herself under your direction and she is making herself in that way vulnerable to you. And it is your responsibility to see that and not to, to, to see it as a responsibility, not as an opportunity. Right? To see the fact that, that your wife has aligned herself with you and placed herself under your care as a responsibility for you to live up to, not as an opportunity for you to take advantage of. So the idea here, 
Dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Take the time to understand where she is, where she needs to be, because you two are heirs together of the grace of life. You two are walking together through this life, hand in hand, partners together, doing this work together, living this life together, which means you have an opportunity and a responsibility to know her. And this is not natural for the husband. When there is a problem, when there is an imbalance, trying to solve that problem. How do you go about solving that problem? Now, as I'm giving these examples today, I've already given a couple examples of what we might call bad character among a wife. I'm not using these to generalize wives. I'm using these as examples of what a person might do that would be out of balance and how a man would go about looking toward perceiving that imbalance. I'm not trying to say that all women are this way. I'm not trying to say that you're this way, wife or or, or woman. I'm not trying to say anything like that. I'm just giving examples. So, a wife that spends money like crazy. There's a person I've talked to several times before, uh, not not from this church, but a person I've counseled with uh, um, over the phone several times. And um, he, he's told me before about uh, his wife, and she just spends money like crazy. And uh, he, he makes uh, six, sometimes seven figures in a year. And yet, the, as fast as he can make it, she's, she can spend it. And he's just pulling his hair out because he can't make enough to deal with the spending. And you tell her to stop, and she gets angry. You ask her to back off, and she punishes you emotionally. But have you ever set yourself aside, set, set the whole money part and the earning part and the here I am bringing home all this money and she's spending it. Have you ever set that aside and taken the time to dwell with her according to knowledge? You know that actions come from somewhere. Any action that we make in our life comes from something. There is a reason for it. And I'm not saying that we're going to blame it, right? We're not going to, well, I'm a product of my circumstances. Well, I'm a product of my environment. Well, I'm a product of my childhood. And none of those things are necessarily wrong. But what I'm saying is tracing a action to a source. Why does she spend that way? There's a reason. Most people are compelled to spend money that, that are compelled to spend that kind of money, do it for the same reason that a person might drink or do drugs. They're trying to fill a void of discontentment, and getting something new is a really good temporary fix. Having that new thing, it gives you that little bit of contentment for just that little bit of time, and then the itch comes back, right? You all know this. My, my uh, Children are the best example of this, right? They ask for something for Christmas. Dad, if you get me this, I'll never... And they, they, they genuinely believe... They will never want anything else again if they get this one thing. I will never ask for anything else again if I can have this thing. And they may not even say that to you, but you are a kid, for those of you that aren't kids, and those of you that are kids, are kids. You know, it's, you believe it. You believe that you will never, ever, ever want anything else again if you get that one thing that is on your mind. And then you get it. And it's great. And then you get bored. And then it gets old. And then you need something new. 
But for that little bit of time, you had that, right? right? You, you had that contentment, you had that rush. And this is why we recognize, as the scriptures tell us, that things don't bring contentment. They can't bring contentment. Money can't bring happiness. Why? Because it's fleeting. But in our minds, there's something happening there, right? Now, when you have the money and when you have the ability to spend and you begin to start spending and you start to get that momentary t- bit of contentment, that excitement over something new, that thing that says you, you receive something new and you get to open it and whatever else. And now we're in unboxing culture, right? And you sit on YouTube and you watch someone unbox something new every day and, and there's always something new to unbox and there's always something new to enjoy and there's always something new, new to, to think about. And, and, and then you get this idea of newness and then the grass is always greener on the other side. And, and See, see th- this comes from somewhere. And again, this is not just women that do this, right? Men do this too. I'm just giving an example here. There's a void there. There is a discontentment that getting something new temporarily fixes a brief res- respite from whatever it is that's actually happening that's, that, 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 that is causing the need to buy something to, to fill. But when the Bible says, husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, the question is, why? Find the thing. Trace the root. Understand why. But to do this, husband, it's going to take sacrificial love. Working through whatever it might be, emotionally or spiritually, that's compelling the action. Being patient. Being deliberate. That means turning off the TV or setting down the phone or getting out of the garage and sitting down and spending time with your wife, investing in her, knowing her. This is the kind of sacrifice that God asks a husband to make. Being patient, hard days, setting aside what you might otherwise want in order to invest in her so that you can dwell with her according to knowledge. What about a wife that gets into dark moods? She gets quiet, she gets broody, then she explodes and blames you for everything. So you fight back. You defend yourself. That doesn't go well. Then you leave her alone and she gets over it and you all figure it out and then you move on. But you haven't solved any problems. It's just a cycle. It's just going to happen over again. She's going to get quiet and say, "Uh uh-oh. And then that quiet turns into cold. Here it comes. And then cold turns into boom. There it is. Now I'm offended, and then I fight back. Now she's offended more, and she fights back. And then we separate and go cool off, and then we kind of figure it out, and then we move on until the next time. But have you solved any problems, or are you just on the roller coaster? Are you just in the cycle? Have you ever set yourself aside and taken the time to understand why? Not just, no, no, not, not just why, she, why she got upset that time, but what about the manner in which the problem is being solved? What about the whole process itself? Where does that come from? Why is it there? Understanding. There are reasons A lot of times, it's a misunderstanding of grace or of forgiveness 
or there's resentments or bitterness somewhere. Lack of understanding about how to deal with these things combined with the own need just to suck it up. And a lot of times, women, mothers in the home, especially if they're mothers and you've got kids to deal with and whatever else, she does not necessarily have the time to address all of her own emotions because she's dealing with everyone else's emotions. How can you help her? How can you serve her? How can you give her the resources necessary to meet her needs so that this doesn't happen? What can we do to facilitate in our wives' lives success? This is the kind of sacrifice that God asks us to make. Hard decisions means being patient. Hard days, setting yourself aside so that you can dwell with her according to knowledge. So what does sacrificial love look like? What does this sacrificial love look like? What does it mean not just to die for your wife, but to live for your wife? Not just to give your life for her in the physical idea of being willing to do so, but willing to yield your life for her. Well, leading, loving by example. It looks like being in yourself what you want her to be. This is where ownership comes in. As Jesus compelled his disciples unto a crucified life, the words he used were, follow me. Husband, if you want your wife to be the kind of woman that you think she ought to be before the Lord, let her see those attributes in you. You want your wife to be a spiritual woman. Show her what it is to be a spiritual man. Then facilitate her own spirituality. Show her how to be spiritual. Facilitate her spirituality. Show her what a Bible reading and prayerful man looks like if you want her to be a Bible reading and prayerful woman. Facilitate her Bible reading and prayer. She's a busy woman. She's got kids. There's things going on. You know what? You bathe the kids tonight so she can go read her Bible if you want her to be a Bible reading woman. Not just, well, why can't you get up earlier? Give her the resources necessary. Facilitate in her life what you want her to be. Help her. Take her to church. Discuss what you learned. Find time to implement it and discuss it together. Show her that you're serious about these things and lead her into that yourself. Take ownership over your marriage. If you are the head and she is the body... The head tells the body what to do, not in a lording over it sort of a way, not in a tyrannical sort of a way. The head says, I am in charge of caring for my body. Your arm cannot mend itself. The brain has to tell, has to to be be integral in making this arm, put a Band-Aid on this arm if this arm needs a Band-Aid. The mind has to be involved in the solution to heal the body. Husbands, if you're called to lead, and you are, then take ownership and lead by example. You want your wife to be a temperate woman. Not in the alcoholic way, just in the self-control way. It's part of it, of course. Show her what it is to be a man who has self-control. Facilitate her self-control through patience and care. Don't expect her to exercise self-control so that you can exercise less self-control. Don't expect her to not spend money so that you can go spend money. Right? 
That's not the idea. And it is Christ's love that compels his followers to be conformed to his image. Not his anger, his love. Christ did not sit on the couch eating potato chips when he commissioned the 70 to go. He went first, showed them what it looked like, then commissioned them to go. Lead by example. The goodness of God, the Bible says, leads us to repentance. The gentleness of our shepherd instills the love that motivates obedience, right? Well, if you are to love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself for it, what should that look like? It should look like self-sacrifice. Show her what it is to be a godly man, a temperate man, an under-control man, a um, meek man, a honest man, and then lead from that position of example into what you would have her to be. Just as Christ does for us when he says, follow me. Second, love not just manifests in example, a love manifests in direction. The sacrificial love of Christ is also manifest in direction. If your wife has, a, has related herself properly to you, she has made herself vulnerable to you in that way. She has placed herself under your, 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 your guidance and care. And by the way, we are seeing, of course, in our society today, we have a, a society that has been inverted and where in many ways uh, we're an effeminate society and in many of our churches as well, uh, we find, and it's been baked into us for, through generations of sitcoms and everything else, right? What, 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 what do sitcom families look like? Well, now they look like, now they're really a mess. But what did they look like in the generation of the, the, the sitcom, Right? The dad goes to work, he comes home, he grabs a beer, he sits on the couch, he watches TV. Mom is holding everything together, right? Mom is, mom is right about everything, mom is holding everything together, mom is keeping everything, and dad is just kind of the guy who goes to work and comes home and then doesn't do much. And mom holds everything together. This is an inversion of the way it is supposed to be. And women did not necessarily take that upon themselves because they inherently wanted to, but because they have to. Husband, if you're not going to do it, well, then your wife is going to. But that doesn't mean she should. It means you need to take ownership. Lead by example. What else did Christ do to take ownership over his church? Well, he directed his church, its structure, its priorities, its results. This is my commandment, Jesus would tell his followers, that you love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, Jesus would tell them, if you have love one toward another. It's no mystery that our head desires of us these things. He has made clear what he desires of us. And not only has he made it clear, but he has given us every resource at our disposal to accomplish his direction for us. He's not left us to figure it out for ourselves. He has also not withheld from us the resources necessary to be successful at his goals. Husbands, let us do the same. What would God have your marriage to look like? Take ownership over what God would have your marriage to look like and then set those goals up. What would, God, what would God have your home to look like? Take ownership over it. Direct your family into what it should look like. And as you, you and your wife, and, and, and again, this is not apart from your wife. You and your wife are going to talk together about these things. What would God have our family to look like? 
What would God have our marriage to look like? It's not something that you're going to stand above her and give her by diktat. This is something that you two as heirs together of the grace of life are going to talk about together. But then you as the head are responsible to bring to bear the resources necessary to see it done. The structure necessary to see it done. Husbands, let's do this. Once again, this means ownership. This means you have to invest the time and the energy. Having clear goals, having direct intent, providing what is necessary for those things to come to pass. If you're not happy with something that's happening in the home, the buck stops with you. Your job to change it. Your job to fix it. Your job to make things, to position your home in such a manner as to see it brought to success. Now, you may delegate a large portion of that responsibility to your wife. She's, she may be significantly more capable than you to be able to bring those things to pass. But it's only going to be as you bring about in your family the structure necessary for her to be able to do what she does best. Making decisions. Lead your home, husbands. Step up. Don't just float through life from thing to thing. Don't just take problems as they come. Be proactive. Have a plan. Have a vision for your marriage. A vision for your home. And if that vision doesn't come to pass, it is on you before the Lord. Put the energy into the resources and directing things unto that end. It also means, however, being patient. Jesus gives perfect direction, right? Jesus gives perfect complete provision. He has told us what to do. Love one another as I have loved you. And then he has given us his Holy Spirit in order to bring this to pass. But the church still struggles, doesn't it? And Jesus is patient. And it takes time. And he gives that time. How much more when we, who are very, very imperfect as husbands, and we're trying to figure out how it is that we can lay out for our families the direction and the goals and to put the resources where they need to go in order to bring about what we would have to be brought about in our lives. How much more are our flaws going to be magnified in the difficulty for these things to be brought to pass? So we have to be patient. And that's where being heirs together of the grace of life and working together and moving together and so, and so dwelling with your wife according to knowledge so that you're partnering together. Yes, you are leading her according to God's design, unapologetically so. But you're not going to be able to do it without her. Jesus loves his church. Husbands love your wives. And in all of this, we grow together and we live together and we strive together as a husband and wife and we're knit together in love as we manifest humility, patience, and dedication one to another. Third, way that Christ loved his, loves his church, not just through example, not just through direction, but also through development. And this goes back to Hebrews 5, and this is an interesting one. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Christ gave himself for the church, specifically so that he can make the church what she needs to be. So that he can sanctify and cleanse her, that in the ages to come he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now we've been talking about it this whole time, 
sacrificial love that is willing to set aside one's own priorities and desires to invest in his wife, to make her what he knows the word of God uh, uh, would, would have her to be, to facilitate her spiritual development, to facilitate her emotional development, to facilitate her physical development, to give the resources necessary to bring to bear the things that will make her successful. And so we develop her into these things in accordance with our responsibility before the Lord to live for her and not for ourselves. You say, Pastor, how do I do that? Shouldn't I send her to you? Isn't that your job? You're, you're the pastor. Shouldn't I send her to some counselor to help her work through these things? Isn't that, isn't that what, what professionals are for? Isn't that what they're paid to do? They, they, they're paid to, to dig in and to, 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 to unknot un, un the knots? Well, no doubt, every woman needs other godly women to talk to. Just as every man needs other godly men to talk to. Every person needs discipleship. No doubt that we all need each other. But when we look to the Bible's direction as it relates to actual instruction and development, Titus 2 tells us that the older women of the church are called to teach the younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, to be chaste, to be keepers at home, to be good, to be obedient to their own husbands. That's what Titus 2 tells us. So the older women teach the younger women the practical elements of caring for the family, of caring for the home, of um, being a virtuous woman. And then, of course, Titus 2 also says to obey their own husbands. And we'll talk about this next week. This is not slavery. This is not ownership. This is an instruction unto alignment for the sake of the husband being able to do what God has called him to do. And that's the idea. That as the woman makes herself that weaker vessel... That as she places herself in your hands, husband, and she makes herself vulnerable to you in whatever ways she has done so in the marriage, that you use that trust that she has put in you for her benefit and thriving, not for your benefit. And of course, the benefit will go both ways, but that's the mindset. Pastor, I can't do that. I don't know how. I'm not qualified to help my wife through these things. Well, there's two things there. First, discipleship, right? You come talk to me. And we'll make sure you're right. And then we'll, ha we'll, we'll, we'll work through in you the ways that you can help your wife. But second... May I say this? According to Ephesians 5 here, verses 25 through 27, not only can you help your wife develop spiritually, emotionally, and physically, not only are you qualified to do so, husband, but you are uniquely qualified. As a matter of fact, you're the only one qualified. Why? Because you're the only person in the world who's bound to her in a one flesh union. Just as Jesus is the only man qualified to sanctify and cleanse his church by the washing of the water with the word, a husband is the only man qualified to sacrificially love his wife through example, direction, and development to become the kind of woman that God would have her to be. You are the only one who can do it. She'll go to some counselor. She'll come to a pastor. She'll hear some good things. That's wonderful. But her development is intrinsically tied to her head. 
Husband, if you don't do it, no one else can. Some can try, and again, they can help in a number of ways. But no one can do for your wife what you can by divine design. You're given that responsibility. And Christ has given you that, 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 that direction and the grace to do so. And he's given you the resources as well. God's grace rests upon you for this to come to pass if you will submit yourself to it. Ask God to give you the wisdom to understand your wife so that you can dwell with her according to knowledge, so that you can help her meet the, the unique needs that she has as a wife and as a mother and as whatever else she might be. To put the resources at her disposal to be successful. Take the initiative to lead her into the goals and the activities which will cultivate her success. Allow God to use your gentle hand to produce that wife of virtue. But from Christ's example to his church, let us remember this as well, that this takes time. Christ is patient. How patient is Christ with us? Well, he doesn't drop us because we're flawed. Nor does he tell us all of our flaws in one day. He's gracious. He's patient. He works with us to get from where we are to where he wants us to be. He has to teach us some lessons again and again sometimes, doesn't he? Husbands, you aren't building a shed here. You're nurturing a wife. You aren't just going to take a week off of work, buy a couple of hammers and a box of nails, and everything's going to be fixed in no time. That's not how it works in a marriage, right? People don't work that way. It's a long-term project, long-term goals. has checkpoints along the way. We change our strategies when things don't work. And by the way, you're dealing with a flawed self as well, right? So you are growing with her. You're not just standing above her saying, I'm perfect, you're not. You're going to have to come up to where I am. No, you two are working together. But though you're working together and walking together and growing together and living together, there's still someone that God has divinely put, made responsible for that union, and it's you, husband. So you had better put in double the effort to love your wife sacrificially. Most men are task-oriented. We thrive on problem-solving. We're far more interested in the destination than the journey. But remember, this is a journey. You're not going to solve it all in one day. You have partnered yourself with another and God has made you and your wife one flesh. He has made you the head and he has made your wife the body. And now it is your privilege for you two to walk through life together and to cultivate her into what God would have her to do. And that's your responsibility, but it's also the grace that he's given you to do it. Now, before I wrap things up, a few words to the wives that are listening today. This message took a different turn than I expected it to as I was writing it. Um, before, the, the, a lot of times when I've preached... Um, these messages, it always takes a little bit of a different because I do one for the husband and I do one for the wife. And there have been times where I've really, really dropped the hammer on the, wife, on the husband. And then uh, when I get to the wife message, I, I even had some, well, a wife come up one time and say, and she, she like came to church tense because I had been so, I dropped the hammer on husbands the week before. And she came to church tense, like, what am I going to get today? And she came up afterwards and said, Pastor, that wasn't that bad. And I said, well, it's just, it's just you know, it's just what, what, it's, it's what the scriptures say, and it's, it's, it's what needed to be said today, right? Um, and, and this time, as the message came together for the husband, um, as you've listened, wife, perhaps there's been a, a little bit of a building frustration in your mind. Um, Pastor, 
the way that you talk to husbands today um, made me feel uncomfortable. I don't need my husband to solve my problems for me. I am my own person. I am an individual. You spoke as if everything about my development and everything about the, the way I think and everything about my emotional state, all of your examples were about wives with problems. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and, and it makes it sound like we're the problem and, and, and the husbands have it all figured out and they just have to get their wives in line. And uh, I don't need to follow him in all of these virtues as if I have no self-agency. I, I can develop these, these virtues apart from him. And, and if you knew my husband, you'd realize that I'm the one dragging him along and, and, I, and I'm, I'm not a child and I'm, I'm perfectly capable of my own discipline and uh, self-discipline and able to work these things out myself. I get it. I get it. And I'm sure for many of you, this is true. Surely you can do these things on your own. <laughs> I, had, I had a guy call me up. He, uh, he, one of my neighbors. He drove by my house the other day, and I had the hood up on my, my, my truck, my Sequoia. And I, I, I had the hood up on it because I was installing a device to disconnect the battery and connect it because it's got a uh, parasitic drain on it. And I don't want to have to deal with it, right? So he, he calls and he says, do you need some help on that? And, you know, I've got this, I've got this deal and I, I, I know a guy, right? I know a guy. Um, and I said, well, you know, it's just a parasitic drain issue. And I got, I got the little lever to be able to disconnect the battery without having to take off the negative terminal each time. And we're just going to live with that. He said... He said, well, maybe, maybe my wife and I could come over and watch your kids for a couple hours and your wife could, could look at it. She'd have it fixed in no time. And, and the fact of the matter is, it's true. <laughs> my wife has an engineering mind, right? That woman can look at something, understand how it works, and she just poof. You know, and and uh, when, when, when I get stuck working on the car, I call her out and I say, could you just take a look at this with me? And she looks through it and she's just... So I'm not, it, it, it is not about, cap, I'm, I'm, this message was not about capability, wives, okay? It's not about capability. It's not about uh, uh, you and your husband as it relates to capability, maturity, and these sorts of things. And we'll talk about this next week. I'm sure, I'm sure you're very capable of throwing your husband and all of your children on your back and carrying them up the hill. I'm sure you're capable of dragging your family across the finish line. I'm sure you're capable of organizing everything. And when your husband gets home, you say, it's all together and I've all got the goals. And he looks and he says, "Uh uh-huh, sounds good. Let's go. I'm sure that you're capable of that. But the fact of the matter is, and we'll talk about this next week, though you are entirely capable, and I know that, there is an order to things. There is a design to things. And when you... when, when, When you... Do throw everything on your back and carry it, as so many women feel they have to do today. You are, you are taking upon yourself more than you're supposed to. And I'm not saying you're in the wrong. I'm saying your husband's in the wrong. I'm saying he is not stepping up and taking off of your plate the things that are his responsibility so that you can maximize your potential for the things that are your responsibility. That are your potential, that are your opportunity. And as I talk about your husband uh, having goals for you and seeing the flaws and helping develop them, I'm not saying that you don't see them. And I'm, not, I'm not saying that you're a, you're, you're, you're a free agent floating through life and all of a sudden your husband has to come and enlighten you to your problems. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is your husband is spiritually responsible for you, your family and your children. And when I stand before God one day, Husbands, when you stand before God one day, you will 
answer, not just for you, but for your wife. And if she did not have the time or circumstance, if she did not, if, if to whatever degree that she fell short because you were not willing to take ownership over your family and help her and commit the resources to her necessary for her to flourish, that is on you before the Lord. She has her own responsibilities, and we're going to talk about those next week. And by the way, the irony of these responsibilities, and we'll, we, we see this, we'll see this in the curse in Genesis chapter 3, when the Bible says, when the Bible curses the woman. The irony of these responsibilities is that they're kind of inverted. So the husband has this responsibility to take ownership, and there's not necessarily, in, in, in some senses, there's a natural proclivity for the husband to be very willing to yield that ownership. And in the same way, the wife's responsibility, the thing that she'll answer before the Lord to, will be this idea of alignment, what the Bible will call submission or reverence. We'll call it alignment a lot next week. And that's something that she has a propensity to not want to do, which means you need God's grace to do it. And that's exactly where God wants you, reliant. So we'll talk about the essence of submission next week. But the the idea today, and I probably should have said this first because it may have helped our wives throughout the sermon. But the idea is it's not about wives, you being unable, apart from your husband, to do anything. But rather, but rather you choosing not to be your own woman and rather being heirs together with your husband in this grace of life. Not because you are going to artificially limit yourself as it relates to your potential, but because you believe that if God's design is right and your husband loves you and he's doing what he ought to before you, this will actually maximize your potential in ways that you wouldn't even understand because faith precedes the blessing. You have to step out in faith first before the blessing will be found. Well, pastor, I don't get it. I don't get it. If you, if you, if you see... The, the way my husband is, the way I am, and, whatever, and, and, and the way our structure is, uh, I, I need to maximize my potential now, and I am maximizing my potential through my self-agency. You think that, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you maximize your potential as you line, align with God's design. And if, in this union of life, heirs together of the grace of life between you and your husband, your husband takes ownership over the family, not in a tyrannical way, but in a servant leadership way. And then you line yourself up with the, the, the example, as we'll talk about next week, of Christ and his church. There will be in this maximum value, maximum potential, maximum blessing, and maximum success. And that simply takes faith. But let me say this as well. There are wives here and others under the sound of my voice whose husbands will refuse to do their part. You're sitting here today and you're, you're, the wife, a wife is sitting here today and, and she says, Pastor, that would be wonderful, but it's never going to happen. Maybe he's not a believer. Maybe he has no interest. Maybe, he, uh, may, may, maybe there's, for one reason or another, a hundred reasons why you say, this is never going to happen. Your husbands will refuse to do their parts. They will not love you as you ought to be loved. And do know this, wife, 
there's grace for that as well. Christ is able to compensate for such things. For you to grow and to develop apart from him if need be. You can have personal spiritual agency in finding Christ, all of those things that you should find in your husband, but that he is withholding from you. And we'll talk next week about what that looks like and how that development works in such a way as to potentially win your husband and bring him to the place where he will begin to do his part. But it's always difficult when the one who is commissioned to lead does not lead. We know this in a family sense. We can see this in an employment sense. You can see this in a political sense. When the leaders are the worst among us, <laughs> things are, are hard. There are natural disadvantages, and there will be natural disadvantages, wife, if your husband is not willing to do his part. Young people, you that are looking to get married, think carefully. Consider carefully, young ladies, who you marry, will he do his part? Because if he will not do his part, even though the Lord can give grace and, and, and there, there is grace for that, there are consequences when a husband doesn't do his part. When he, he, when he will not love you in the Lord as the scriptures call him to, where he will not be selfless, where he will not set himself aside, where he will not live for you as he would die for you, there are consequences to that. And you're going to have to live with those because we've already talked about divorce. And it's not an option. Because it's outside of God's design, it doesn't mean you can't develop. It doesn't mean you can't flourish in the Lord. It doesn't mean you can't have, have, have joy and, and live within the circumstances that, 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 you, that you are in. But there will be a lack that you're going to have to live with for as long as your husband is choosing not to love you as he ought. This is the consequence of choices. And every choice has consequences. Some good, some bad, but every choice has consequences. And so you do your part, and we'll talk about what that is next week. And trust the power of the Spirit through that obedience and through that love and through that, that, that uh, um, obedience to the Lord to affect your husband. And again, we'll talk about that next week. But husbands... If you take this message to heart, your wives will never be in a place where they have to think through that. If you do your part, if you will love your wife the way you are commanded to love her, using Christ's love for his church as an example, in any given situation, you know, that, 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 that old uh, what would Jesus do uh, craze is kind of gone and, and, and probably for the best because it got a little trite. But the idea that when you are dealing with your wife, how should I respond to my wife? How should I invest in my wife? What should I do with my free time? What should I do with my resources? To think, what would Christ do if this were his interaction with his church is a really good place to start. How can I love my wife as Christ loves the church? And as I've said before, I say again, and I remind you, it is not just that you are responsible in a divine design sense for this, husbands, but you are accountable before God for this work. But may I say this also? As you sacrificially love your wife, 
You lead her by example. You direct her into the vision that God has given for your home. You carefully and, and, and patiently help her develop into the woman that God would have her to be. You will find in this self-sacrificial love so much joy, so much contentment, such rewards. That's what's down there at the end of the cliff when you step off, when God says step and I'll catch you and I'll bring you to something better and you can't see it because the clouds are there and the clouds are really thick right now because we have an ent- entire society that has inverted this entire system and it's tried to, to, to take everything and turn it on its head to make marriage seem like a terrible and a miserable thing where everything is about uh, uh, trying to get uh, milk what you can out of it and to whatever degree you have to give back something, that that's going to be the bad part of marriage when in fact the Bible says that that is the essence of marriage is pouring into your spouse and that in that is the actual reward of marriage. To that end, husband, I give you all of these things not to make you miserable, but to make you content beyond your wildest imagination. But, you know, even if it were the case that these things were going to be tough on you, that by self-sacrificially yielding yourself for your wife, that living for her rather than living for yourself, that committing yourself to pouring the time, the effort, the love, the knowledge, and the resources into her in order to make her successful, even if all of that happened at the expense of yourself entirely in this life, it would still be worth it for the life that is to come to align with God's way. Fortunately, that's not the case. You do this and there will be rewards in this life as well. But the fact that it's God's way should be enough of a reason for any of us to do it. And may God help us husbands to do that, to dwell with our wives according to knowledge, to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he may present her to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And so be those who practice biblical marriage and not just preach biblical marriage. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.